The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Russia 432. China air attack, 1300. Submissile attack, China. 17 and 18 are acting up. Okay, I'll get right on it. Dr. Kale? Yes, Ross. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir, but Dr. Nicholson insisted I give this to you at once. We will postpone the rest of World War III until after lunch, gentlemen. The results so far are completely unsatisfactory. As a matter of fact, your retaliatory response indicates a total defeat with a 75% mortality rate for the Western Hemisphere. I suggest that you abort Plan R-17 and devote the rest of the afternoon to preparing and computing an R-18 response. Tackle so again after dinner, hopefully with a more auspicious projection of the free world. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 13, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you now and No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us here on Just Right. And you can email us as well at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today's show is quite a smorgasbord, isn't it, Robert? It's a back-and-forth collection of tips and tricks from the newspapers. Yep, and uh, what we're calling it today is kind of a headline highlight show as opposed to the single feature spotlights that we're kind of more used to doing. So it's a bit of an experiment for us. Robert and I are sitting here with newspaper clippings all around us. I think it came from the fact that when we talked uh, a few days ago, what are we going to do on Thursday's show? There's just too many things going on. So we're going to deal with them. Yeah, sometimes they get away from us because to deal with them properly, you want to spend a good 15 minutes on each one. But we can't do that with each of these, although we will likely revisit some. And of course, among them will be the climate debate and of course the crisis in Iran and in in many of the other uh, Islamic countries around the world that we're seeing today. In fact, on my way driving in today, Robert, I hear that uh, many of the embassies around the world are under high alert, American embassies as well as the Canadian embassy in Cairo having been closed, apparently for the day. But we'll follow up on that and a number of other issues, including elections, back to school, and a whole bunch of other stuff that just has come up. Some of these are just almost one-liners, aren't they, Robert? Yes. Here's one for me. I was listening to another radio station, a couple other radio stations. I heard the same report several times, almost in the same, same words. And they keep saying, quote, there are still signs that economic growth is still decelerating despite economic stimulus, (laughs) okay? I heard that about five or six times in the past few days. World markets are still sitting there waiting for economic stimulus as though it's the manna from heaven. And, And, you know, this is the financial reporter. What do you mean despite economic stimulus? Wouldn't it be because of the economic stimulus? What gets me is that here we have supposed capitalists, right, the markets, the financial reporters, waiting for a redistribution of wealth. 
In other words, shuffle the chairs around on the Titanic and that should spark the economy. They really have to get their heads around what the idea of stimulus is. It is nothing but wealth redistribution. And not even that, really. Yeah. It's the redistribution of IOUs for wealth. Really? Yeah, and it's a shell game all the way through. Po- total shell game. So... Let's keep an eye out on that one. That's just something else. You know, and here's another issue that we haven't talked about a lot recently. Global warming. And uh, there's that Gwen Dyer in the paper. He just goes on and on and on and on <laughs> about global warming, about the threat. And he says that the, the climate mess may be worse than we know, he writes in the Free Press on September 8th. And apparently, turns out, Robert, that the jet stream, and here's how, this is my interpretation of what he said in that article, is having its wave amplitude increased because of the Arctic being warmer than has been recent. Dyer cites a study called Evidence Linking Arctic Amplification to Extreme Weather in Mid-Latitudes, published in Geophysical Letters. Its authors, uh, two people from universities, have offered this study as their hypotheses, quote, that may explain why world grain prices have risen 30% in the past four months and are still going up. End of quote. So it's the wave amplitude, apparently, that's driving these prices up. <laughs> you don't think it's all that ethanol production that yeah. we're having by taking over our uh, cornfields with uh, the ethanol uh, corn? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. You know, you know I, I respect Gwyn Dyer for his political analysis of global conflict. But in this issue, I think he really has to do I his I don't homework. know what it is with him. He's just sticking to it. And, and uh, you know, talk about going upstream or against the jet stream, you know. <laughs> so he, us- he usually comes with, you know, all, all, always the same. This is a re- recipe for extreme weather. And he describes future droughts and prolonged rains and, and heat waves and blizzards. All of the same events that occur on, on this planet each and every day of the week. For the last 100,000 years, well, million years. <laughs> so, you know, what, how I saw this was uh, a scientific explanation attempted for an economic phenomenon. All you have to do is understand supply and demand to know why prices are going up. The prices would go up if we all stopped buying, or if there was a shortage as well, you know, caused by people buying more. Does that mean there's something changing in the weather? No. Only in the climate of human behavior. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the real world, this was amazing. And this should have been a headline, Robert. Tiny, tiny feature in the National Post in in the corner. And it says, the wind blows Germany to coal. And we learn from the pages of the National Post on August 29th the following. Quote, and this is from Germany's new renewal energy policy. A commentary by... Calvin Kem, member of the International Board of Advisors of the Washington-based Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, who writes, quote, In mid-August, Germany opened a new 2,200-megawatt coal-fired power station near Cologne, and virtually not a word has been said about it. This dearth of reporting is even more surprising when one considers that Germany has said building new coal plants is necessary because electricity produced by wind and solar has turned out to be unaffordably expensive and unreliable. 23, count them, 23 new coal-fired plants are under construction in Germany as we sit here talking today. And just recently, German figures were released on the actual productivity of the country's wind power over the past 10 years. The figure is 16%. 
Even worse, after spending billions of euros on subsidies, Germany's total combined solar facilities have contributed a miserly, imperceptible 0.084% of Germany's electricity over the last 22 years. That's not even one-tenth of 1%. Moreover, the actual cost of Germany's wind and solar electricity is far and away higher than its cost of coal and nuclear power. So much for free solar and wind, so much for all the German jobs that depend on reliable access to affordable electricity. End quote. Does anything else need to be said to that, Robert? Only ancillary. Um, Japan has recently said that they're going to get get off the uh, nuclear uh, generation of electricity uh, in the wake of the tsunami. And uh, I find that interesting, considering that nobody died because of that nuclear uh, power plant's uh, expulsion of radiation. No, I didn't. They died in the explosion, but not in the radiation. I actually didn't get the impression that Germany was going to entirely abandon nuclear either. They were they were thinking about that right after the tsunami. They were marching yes. in the streets saying abandon nuclear. But from this story and other things, I wonder it. if this isn't a prelude though to their abandonment of nuclear by going to twenty opening twenty three new coal fired plants. Well, you know. It's ironic that we here in Ontario, and us too with Freedom Party, that's one of the things we've been talking about. The technology is, is explosive everywhere. Even coal can be burnt, quote, cleanly now. Yes, it can. And so why aren't we using it instead of putting in these expensive, expensive, unproven... The green. You know, you can't push a technology. We've been talking about that for five years on this show, and now the chickens come home to roost. I've got a couple of points, and one is mm-hmm. um, have to do with the Conservative government here in Canada. They recently, uh, under the uh, tutelage of Jason Kenney, the minister responsible for immigration, cracking down on... Uh, bogus claims for citizenship, uh, what apparently people are doing, and uh, apparently most of them are from uh, Middle Eastern countries, particularly Lebanon, uh, are using uh, consultants here in this country to falsify the length of time that they stay in Canada. Apparently you need to stay two out of, uh, I believe it's five years in this country to qualify for citizenship. What they do is they set up bogus addresses, stay over in their countries, and then claim that they're in these con- in Canada for those two years. Without ever coming here at all? Without ever, either without ever coming here at all, or they come over here to start the process and then just leave and don't come mm. back, ever. <laughs> what they want is one of those get-out-of-hell-free cards, as we mentioned on the show before, a Canadian passport. And... What I find uh, interesting is, first of all, this is uh, good news from the Conservative government, and kudos to them for this action. It's long overdue. Um, secondly, why would we give any citizenship to a person who's right off the bat flaunting our laws? They are lying right up front. They should never be given citizenship because of that. So, on the flip side, while I'll give kudos to the Conservative government for this, another item in the uh, National Post uh, front page, by the way, they pick their front page stories bizarrely, to tell you the truth. Um, the Canadian government is giving uh, just shy of a million dollars to an agricultural research company to create a sausage that doesn't sizzle. <laughs> I know that everybody out there has had that conundrum where they um, have their sausages and they burst because of too much fat or the skin is too tight and then the flames grow high and then you burn your sausages. So our Canadian government is coming to the rescue with uh, a hell of a lot of your taxpayers' dollars to prevent the sizzling sausage. So, one hand, great on immigration. 
<laughs> as far as using your taxpayers' dollars wisely, they're just as bad as the Liberals were. Well, if I can add to that, you, you, I pulled out another one of these clippings that I brought that happened to cross over that very issue where you're talking about the sausages, which were not included in this Fraser Institute report that came out about the government's handling of so-called repayable contributions, which you and I would normally call a loan. Uh, and they found out that $13.7 billion has been doled out since 1982. If that's true since 82, that's not really a lot compared to what the government spends in other areas. But of course, very little of it is paid back, and over all that time, they've only collected $9 million in interest. And what's amazing is that the New Democrats are really aghast at the enormity of the unpaid debt and they keep saying, why are the conservatives letting corporations get away with this? Well, that's because of you New Democrats, you guys. You, you, you guys want all the jobs, and the corporations create those jobs. And so the governments give those corporations the money you want for your job, and then when the corporation gets the money, you get angry. Mm-hmm. No wonder you're all go- falling out of work and unions are losing jobs left, right, and center because they don't even understand the basic logic. Pardon of, the uh, pun, left, right, yes, and center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and back to... Uh, another situation where the left mm-hmm. mimics the right and the right mimics the left because the two are the same side of the socialist coin. We have Mitt Romney uh, in the United States vying for, of course, the uh, presidency and demonstrating, again, the lack of any divide between the conservatives and liberals in the U.S. as in this country. Romney has vowed to retain that element of Obamacare which would force insurance companies to cover those with pre-existing conditions. So in other words, anybody who thought that uh, putting in a Republican is going to get rid of Obamacare, you're mistaken. Or economic injustice, jeez. Yeah, so does he understand what the word insurance means? It's a risk management system primarily used to hedge against the risk of a contingent, uncertain, yet possible future loss. A pre-existing condition negates the entire concept of insurance and forces insurance company to basically pay for everyone's health care. It's absolutely asinine. And it just goes to show the level that some politicians would stoop to to, uh, to get elected. Oh, we'll give you free health care. Of course, the insurance companies are going to have to raise everybody's rates exorbitantly to do that. And oh, absolutely. You can't, there's an equation out there. You can't take from one without giving to another or give to one without taking from another. It, it applies to stimulus. It applies to this insurance scheme that Romney wants to do and Obama wants to do. And all you have to do is think about the equation. You can't get something from nothing. But it, you can make it look like that, though. That's the problem. That's the thing. When you're dealing with a large enough number, the people who are receiving don't see the people paying and don't see where the damage is. And that's how they've been getting away with it. Now the damage is becoming more and more spread out, and it's becoming more visible. Anyways, what's new there? I think we should switch to our next coming up topic now, which is what's going on really heavily in the news today. And I don't know about you, Robert, but I'm smelling a war in Iran. Yep. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, Canada closed its embassy. It smells and sounds like it. Huh? (laughs) Smells and sounds like it. Yes. Canada closed its embassy last week. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that after this break. But what you'll be hearing first is a very passionate debate between Bill O'Reilly and Leonard Peikoff. You wanted to say something about it too, Yeah, about Leonard Peikoff. Before we get mm-hmm. into the break, because I know I forget afterwards, yeah. that Leonard Peikoff, of course, is a philosopher and the founder of the Ayn Rand Institute and uh, intellectual heir uh, to the Ayn Rand estate. And uh, his new book, The Dim Hypothesis, Why the Lights of the World Are Going Out, 
has just been released. It's now in bookstores, and I expect my copy to be in my mailbox when I get home today. So um, I would highly recommend, although I haven't read it, I would highly recommend people get this book just based on uh, the other books that uh, Leonard Peikoff has done. Excellent. Now, this this particular debate, I understand, was originally posted to YouTube in 2008, but actually was aired just a month or so after the 9-11 event in New York. Is that correct? Uh, uh, yes, about a month after, I think, from the... Uh, so it'd be around October 2001-ish yes. that this debate took place. And I think it kind of speaks for itself, and Robert and I will comment when we return. Military power. Joining us from Los Angeles is Dr. Leonard Peikoff, the founder of the Ayn Rand Institute. So, Doctor, I understand that if uh, the U.S. does go in with heavy-duty uh, air power and, and all kinds of things like this, and civilians get killed, you're not so worried about that. I'm absolutely not concerned with innocent people in the enemy territory. If they get killed, that is the responsibility of their government for initiating aggression against us. In any war, when you fight the enemy, you have to take anyone in that territory and regard him as part of the enemy. Otherwise, you can't defend yourself. If you're concerned with the innocents in those countries, you are pulling your punches in there by jeopardizing the innocents in our countries. It's either or. If you believe in self-defense, you fight it to the full. If they were to adopt your philosophy, the Bush administration, and go in and just level a country, which wouldn't take much. I mean, it's not a sophisticated country. You could level that place in probably a day. Um, the rest of the Islamic world would probably rise up. You know, you'd see the dead babies and, and all of that. And we would be fighting then all of the uh, hundreds of millions of Muslims across the world. It well, seems me to me that that might be a war we don't want to get into. I don't think Afghanistan should be the primary battle place at all. But, but answer the, the question. Desire to get Bin Laden. If they did, I, no, if they if did what the you right suggest. Country, yes. If we hit the right country, which is Iran, and with the full effective force of the United States and unseated the Iranian government and made clear the principle why, I say, you would terrify the terrorists' governments in the rest of uh, the Middle East. Well, what if you're and wrong? You what if problem. you're wrong? What if, what if you ignite if you're wrong, a what global if conflict? For- what? You don't ignite a global conflict by exterminating an enemy that's trying to exterminate you. Otherwise, you can say, I'm afraid of the repercussions of defending myself. Well, look, so there I'll are ways sit there and to let do the it. terrorists unleash germ warfare and chemical warfare and nuclear warfare on us. That's what's coming next. It's the survival of this country. So either you say we're going to fight and, and we're not going to worry about the reaction. And the very fact that the United States is the only superpower, if it doesn't stand up and take over the worst country there, which is Iran, the source of this maniacal. Islamic fundamentalist movement. If we don't do that, our name is mud and we deserve what we get. All right, but doctor, I mean, I am I, telling you that if the United States attacked Iran, that you would then run the risk of alienating all our friends, so-called friends in the Middle East, They're which we depend on friends. oil. Well, They're we depend on them for oil. And you would ignite a jihad, oil. a holy war, and we get into a, holy... a world a world war. See, I think you, you could a, do it there's surgically. There's nobody that would dare take on the United States if they thought that the United States would stand up for what it believes in. But because the United States has been a paper tiger for 50 years now toward the Mideast, they have total contempt for us. So they have to learn, like any bully that has been getting away with 
with murder and having the victim turn the other cheek and cower in fear, they have to learn that we will stand up. Other than that, we are destroyed as a country. I'm not a person who is easily dissuaded from justice, but I don't want to see women and children in Afghanistan slaughtered by bombs. I don't want to then see you're that. You're going that's to see women and children in New York slaughtered by bombs, and that's your only choice. But if no, it's not the only choice. There's yes, another it's way to do it. Already. If that other way doesn't way. work, then I might go the your way. But I, I try the other not, way. Tell me another way that hasn't been the tried surgical for overthrow years. of that government and the methodical hunting down of the law. What difference does it make if the Taliban is overthrown? Well, that's when step the one. The source of the whole movement is in Iran. Well, that's step one. We deal with Iran, but we deal with them in a very methodical and a way. Let's, Doc, pity, I let's run. have pity for Afghanistan right. and take on Iran. I gotta run. Thanks very much. Wow. <laughs> what a debate, eh? O'Reilly has his head in the sand. Peacock is absolutely right on, uh, right on everything he said. I agree. And it's funny, I think it's coming to a head now. And look at where Harper closed the embassy in Iran. Kudos again to the conservative government yes. for doing the right thing. Get out, screams the headline on September 8th, London Free Press, as the Canadian government closed its embassy in Tehran and advised all Canadians to stay away from the region. Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird made his announcement while in Vladivostok, Russia, Robert, but took the precaution to email reporters to, quote, rule out the idea that Canada has some inside intelligence about any pending military action against Iran, end quote. And yet... Canadian embassy staff in Tehran were being withdrawn, quote, for safety reasons, Baird said. Now, it could have been these uprisings we're seeing, maybe they saw them coming. But I think there's been some other signs in place, too, that could suggest it's There's been else. a lot of signs in place, um, and they've listed a number of things to, uh, to uh, precipitate this um, breaking of, of relations with Iran, support for Syria, uh, state-sponsored terrorism, the nuclear program, racist rhetoric against Jews, and also in this country they have been accused of uh, uh, browbeating Iranian Canadians uh, into spying on their uh, on spying on Canada, and also getting involved in the uh, airing of. Uh, films in Ottawa, if you remember uh, back oh, about a year ago, somebody wanted to put a um, Iranian, I think it was called, a, a film in Ottawa, and the Iranian government asked the government to ban it mm -hmm. and stop the production of it. All those things have been leading up to this, so I don't know if they have any foreknowledge of uh, impending. I mean, no more than you or I, and it sounds like war to me. Well, all the signs are there. It's very potential, let's put it that way. You know, uh, Canada has placed Tehran on its list of state sponsors of terrorism. And uh, very interesting commentary by Charles uh, Krauthammer in the September 4th National Post headed The Deterrence Works Fantasy, where he writes that a significant school of American realists remains absolutist on deterrence and is increasingly annoyed with those threatening a preemptive strike to stop Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Quote, Deterring Iran is fundamentally different from deterring the Soviet Union, he says. Three obvious reasons, he writes. One, the nature of the regime. Did the Soviet Union, in its 70 years, ever deploy a suicide bomber? <laughs> hmm. 
You know, even the Japanese, when they did, it was in military action. Not and they were uniformed. Yes. Uh, and so, yes. so they were a weapon in that case. That doesn't even count. Mm-hmm. You know, even as bizarre as that seems to us. Uh, he writes for, for Iran, as for other jihadists, suicide bombing is routine. Iran's clerical regime rules in the name of a fundamentalist religion from whom the here, or for whom the hereafter offers the ultimate rewards. For Soviet communists, thoroughly militantly atheistic, such thinking is an opiate-laced fairy tale. You know, the classic formulation comes from Tehran's fellow and rival Sunni jihadist, Al-Qaeda. Quote, you love life and we love death. They literally came out and said it, Robert. End quote. Try deterring that. Faith and force, destroyers of the modern world, wrote Ayn Rand, and there it is, eh? Number two is uh, the nature of the grievance, of course. The Soviet quarrel with America was ideological. Iran's quarrel with Israel is what they call existential. The Soviets never proclaimed a desire to annihilate the American people. For Iran, the very existence of a Jewish state on Muslim land is an abomination. No coexistence or accommodation is possible. It's not in the cards. And, of course, three, the nature of the target. Israel, at one point, only eight miles wide, he calls it a one-bomb target. That doesn't mean the mullahs will necessarily risk terrible carnage to their country in order to destroy Israel, but it does mean that the blithe assurance to the contrary, because the Soviets never struck first, is nonsense. The mullahs have a totally, radically different worldview. And that is why Israel is contemplating a preemptive strike, end quote. I think that was really behind the closing of the embassy. I might be totally wrong, and it might never happen. What do you think? I, I'm, you could be right. I don't know. Um, I, I think if people want an, an example of just how insane Ahmadinejad is, yesterday he accused his country's enemies of engaging in, in an evil plan to create a drought in his country by somehow destroying the rain clouds before they reach Iran. And if this buffoon ever had his finger on a nuclear trigger, I think he'd pull it. I think that when they get the bomb, I think it's going off. I, I, I think so, too. And, and, and it's not just because we can anticipate it. They're telling us. Yes, and they're being very explicit. The most explicit. obvious truths in the world are those that we're told. And everybody said, oh, we didn't see Hitler coming. Yeah, you should have seen him coming. He was telling you it's coming. <laughs> Lots of people saw Hitler coming. Yeah, they did. And yeah. they, just, they were just ignored. You know, Iran was the very first country to overthrow its government um, in the Arab world and primarily started what's so-called Arab Spring. Uh, decades before Tunisia did and the rest of the Arab world, it should have been the target of our forces in the aftermath of 9-11, just as Dr. Peikoff said. In fact, that regime, that criminal regime, should have been overthrown in 1979 when they refused to release the U.S. hostages, only doing so when Reagan gave his inaugural speech. I remember that vividly. Why? Because the Democratic Carter was apologetic. Reagan would have destroyed them. And today, Obama is doing the exact same thing. He's apologizing. His um, Cairo embassy officials, in in other words, the Obama regime, the Obama administration, though I think regime is probably a better word, came out after the release of that film um, in the United States by so-called, that guy, what's his name, Sam Basile. Mm -hmm. The real name apparently is Nakula Basile Nakula, and um, which is a blatant, uh, insult to Islam. I've seen the uh, trailer on YouTube, and it's such a poor, poor movie. Anybody could have done better with a handicam. But when that came out, the American embassy in Cairo issued an apology. 
for somebody's uh, insulting Islam because of the Americans' use of free speech. This was an individual, not an American mm -hmm. uh, government movie. There was no need for apologies. And whenever they apologize, they're basically emboldening the murderers. That's what they're doing. I agree. Disgusting. And Romney was right to pick on um, Obama for that. Just, just to put the insult on the injury, Iran's foreign ministry issued a statement saying that it's Canada, not Iran, that's a, quote, a source of threat to international security and stability. <laughs> Meanwhile, here at home, Canada's NDP called Harper's decision to cut off relations with Iran bizarre. Hmm. You know, once you're all disconnected from reality, I guess you're all on the same page of some sort. Well, we got to change, turn that page now as we come back to southern Ontario, where we have uh, our ongoing issue in the Caledonia area. And we'll pick up on that on the other side of this break. But first, you're going to be hearing uh, uh, an outtake, both on this side of the bumper and on the other side when we come back, from an August 31st broadcast on Sun TV News with Michael Corrin featuring um, Stuart Lawton, who was a guest on this show previously. Yes. And our own Ted Harlson, who friends is... Friends of ours. Friends yeah. of ours. He's a member of Freedom Party, was a, was a can, um, candidate in the last election, mm -hmm. and uh, also went to this event as a Freedom Party um, representative to see what was going on. And you'll hear his story in this, and we'll talk about it when we return. Bloody criminals, lock them up, throw away the key, or things like that. I've got two here, we're going to introduce them in a few moments' time. Two men who, who were incarcerated. The police never do anything wrong, the law's always right, politicians are, are perfect. Stuart Lawton, Ted Hulson. Gentlemen, welcome to you. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. How long did you spend in prison? At least over an hour, and it, it, three hours in custody, I would say. Yeah, I would say three hours are over. Okay, and, and an hour of that in a cell. Mm -hmm. What did you do? We, why, why were you put in prison in the first place? I mean, I know you. I've been to your home, and, and you're, a, you're a, a model citizen. I assume you're, you're the same. you got a tie yes. on. Why, why were you arrested? We were arrested in order to prevent a breach of the peace. To prevent? In yes, in, in Caledonia on what some people call disputed lands. Now, there's a lot of native protesters. This is not condoned by their own elected Six Nations Council, but the protesters illegally claim ownership of land and they want the police to keep me and Ted off because we're the wrong skin color or we're the wrong political persuasion. And because the police know we will be assaulted by the native protesters if we go onto the property, they arrest us so they can't get at us. And so peace has been maintained. Now, I think most of you probably are familiar with the situation, but if not, this is Caledonia, Ontario. Yes allegedly disputed land mm -hmm. where uh, government, federal and provincial and municipal and the police have just bent over backwards. The police have literally, we, we know this, police have literally turned their back sometimes to not look at crimes that are being committed. Mm -hmm. People are being kidnapped, assaulted, tortured, threatened. Uh, one man will be permanently disabled because of an attack that took place. You went to look, because you, you don't live in Caledonia. I live in Burlington. You live in Burlington? I live in Brampton. You live in Brampton. Why did you go along to Caledonia? Because ideas matter. Ideas are very important to me, and especially the ideas of civil law upholding equal law for everybody, not just for certain groups or races of people. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, yeah. you, you, you mentioned skin color. You're, you're white. You're whitey as anything. Manifestly. Whiter than me. 
if you don't mind me asking you, because you, you, you have the same skin colour as, um, my, 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 as my children do, what is your background? My background is part native, uh, and although I do not identify as being native, uh, mm. my ideas are my own. I'm, if you must ask, I'm Shushwap from British Columbia right. uh, as a background. So why, and why, Norwegian. And Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> mix. <laughs> yeah, quite a mix. Yeah. <laughs> what do they meet? Some Reykjavik or somewhere in the middle? But you're, you're part native, so surely, though, you should be one of the demonstrators. Look, let's be honest. You are more native than many of the people, many of the people, if not sometimes most of the people who are demonstrating. I've met some of them. That There are the, the white lefty protesters. There are people who are so tenuously native, it's hard to believe they are. Yet you're there and you're arrested by the police because if they don't arrest you and take you away, you may be beaten up by allegedly native protesters. Yes, this only shows that it's not really about race, which they claim with their signs of white supremacy and, and racism signs against uh, Canis, it's definitely about politicized policing. Yeah. And it, it's very much against um, who they favor, which I don't think, it, it breaks objective law. I mean, the criminal code is objective law. Yes. But when they start following policies and ideas that are non-objective, then of, of course they're going to run into problems that uh, conflict with proper policing. It's quite incredible. I, I see yeah. this replicated elsewhere where the police will say, for your protection, we're going to take you away, humiliate you, abuse you, and arrest you. I've seen this at gay pride parades. We saw this at the so-called Al-Qabs Day uh, garbage that, that, that went on. Yeah. So rather than saying to, to the protesters, you have no right to assault people. If you try to, we will arrest you. They said, we're going to put you in a cell to make sure that we don't have to do our job properly. Yes, there are many parallels with uh, the G20. Uh, summit where large numbers of innocents were arrested. The police believe the current policing model, born, bred, raised in Caledonia, is to make a large show of police force, in part to intimidate us, in part just to be present, and basically arrest innocent parties. And guilty parties are either not arrested or they're arrested weeks later or months later on video evidence, which is more tenuous and harder to prove. What did the cops say to you? The police told, I followed Gary McHale as soon as I saw him arrested. See, you see, I wasn't going to do anything. But as soon as I saw Gary McHale arrested, I said, this is not right. I can't stand by and do nothing. So I followed him in onto the field to go on to the rally. Mm. And so I knew that I was going to get arrested too. And that's what happened. Um, well, what do they say? I mean, because they, the police... I mean, I know they have this officious, robotic uh, approach sometimes, but they're also humans. They, they, I mean, some of them, they must cringe that they have to do this. They, they must know that you're, you, you're the good guy. Yes, I, I did see them cringe. And I also realized a lot of them did not stand up for their conscience rather than... Mm. They, they obeyed rather orders, follow. did they? Yes. Mm. And they told me to get back behind the line, and I said, no, I can't do that. I'm going... To follow Gary McHale. I'm going to follow this idea of the rally, a peaceful yeah, walk, yeah. and I'm going to do it regardless of the consequences, which was getting arrested. By Canadians in Canada, often flying the Canadian flag, they've been told not to fly the Canadian flag, it might be insulting and offensive to people. And I don't understand why there aren't more Canadians who are incredibly angry at what is going on here. 
I'd like to make a point that we don't know who the next premier of Ontario will be and what racial groups he will favor. This could backfire terribly on these native protesters who, if the new premier privileges white people, will be seeking and getting Gary's help. I will be very surprised if Ontario does have a conservative government. And even if it does, I think you will find, just as with the Harper government in Ottawa, they'll turn their back. They're frightened. They're frightened of being of accusations of racism. They're frightened of the native lobby of, of left-wing groups, and it's um, I'm ashamed, deeply troubling, gentlemen. Uh, if you get arrested again, don't come to me. I can't be bothered. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for so. Thank you. <laughs> if you get arrested again, don't come again. Can't be bothered. Don't come to me. Yeah. I guess you can only make that point once or twice. I know that Ted went back the following week and did get arrested a second time. But of course, last week he he did not go. There's they're having Sunday walks in the Caledonia area, and if anyone's interested in joining one of those walks with Gary McHale, you can check it out online at CaledoniaWakeUpCall.com for anyone interested in that. But uh, Ted was in London this past weekend with us, and he told us a little more of the details behind that uh, that arrest there and how confused the police were, and they just couldn't accept the fact that he was on the other side. <laughs> and he was free to walk wherever he wanted to. It was just up to him. Michael Corrin said something during the interview which I found uh, interesting. He said... You should you should have been one of the demonstrators, having been uh, yeah. native, and that's a common belief that a lot of people out there have. I think Michael Corn obviously said it tongue in cheek, but mm-hmm. a lot of people out there have the idea that oh, if you're native, then you should think like this. And here we have a man like Ted Harrelson saying, "My my ideas are my own, and his genes don't tell him how to think." I think that's great. And I found I actually so. very funny. I've never even knew that uh, Ted was uh, part Shuswap and part Norwegian. No, I mean he doesn't know him for quite a long he time. He doesn't look really white bread. Doesn't look Anglo-Saxon. But um, nobody cared about his ethnic origins were, and he never ever brought them up. And only when Michael Corn asked—that's the first time I ever heard him bring it up—his genetic ba- background, because genes don't matter when it comes to your ideas. Exactly. That all we have to say on Caledonia for now? This is an ongoing issue. We'll deal with it, uh, no doubt, in the future as well. Okay, who's next, you or me? <laughs> um, well, there's one item in the news okay. that's caught my eye and um, was a full-page thing in the uh, National Post from September 10th. For the letter section, they asked their readers, what should MPs fix first? And I just found that, uh, first of all, couple of things struck my mind first of all you know mps Fix? have really no power <laughs> you know it's the it's prime minister in the cabinet that's it the mps are there just as lap lap dogs which say yes or no right um but besides that the point is what can't they fix the question perpetuates the myth that firstly mps have you know the power to fix anything and um they're the problem they're the problem. That's the bottom line. And they're it? not going to fix anything. They're just going to look at the letters uh, that, that answer that question. We should have an abortion law. Um, Parliament should fix itself. Get tough on guns. We deserve better health care. Solve the question in Quebec. It's the economy, stupid. Go green. But hidden in all of those gimme, gimme, gimme projects, which uh, there was one letter by an E.N.J. Fowles from Spruce Grove, Alberta, who said, 
Quote, Stephen Harper should summon the courage to eliminate public sector unions, marketing boards, provincial trade barriers, equalization payments and foreign aid, plus the financing of any media, arts or games. Come on, Mr. Harper, the time has come to stand strong in defense of us all, our freedom and our rights to make our own economic decisions. Any chance that Harper will listen to this fellow from Spruce Grove? I doubt it. But if he did, then I'll believe that MPs can fix something. Interesting. I think that subject you just brought up might segue well into an item I brought with me here, Robert. And I guess it comes out of the belief that politicians can fix things and do things in a orderly way. Because what we're hearing here in London locally now is a drive to have our councillors become full-time councillors. And I saw a letter to the editor by none other than Barry Wells in the London Free Press. Mm Mm-hmm kind of a lefty from our point of view, but I agree with every word in this letter. And I want to thank him for writing it. Give him two thumbs up. This short letter is perhaps the most succinct, clear, and accurate appraisal of the situation of governance. So I want to thank Barry for reminding us of these facts. And here they are. They were in the uh, London Free Press in his letter to the editor on September 6. Quote, The role of London City Council is to set policy not to micromanage the affairs of the municipality. The role of City of of London staff is to administer, manage, and implement the policies set by City Council. We have plenty of full-time City of London staff to implement these policies. The matter of full-time councillors with full-time pay is a ruse, a red herring, (laughs) where we used that phrase before. The sole member of City Council who is full-time with full-time pay is the mayor. These are the ground rules under Ontario's Municipal Act, period. And I think that's pretty well exactly correct. That's how it's set up. That's how it's supposed to operate. And I think councillors are doing way too much already because, you know, most of the business of local government itself is just business, but politicians don't do business. They do politics, and then they give us the business. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it always ends up. So... Does that reflect on even your point there with the federal? You know? No, I agree with Barry Wells completely. Um, not only that, the uh, idea of a full-time councillor, what that really means is full-time pay. And what people don't understand uh, is these uh, guys already make more than what a lot of us make working full-time. So, and, and, and one-third of it, I believe, is an officer's allowance from the provincial government, which means it's tax-free. So their benefits and their, their income is far outweighing a lot of full-time employees in this city. So stop, giving, uh, stop crying the blues there, um, Councillor Orser, and uh, just set policy and stop mi- trying to micromanage and uh, come up with the next uh, uh, scheme to tell us what to do. Yeah, right. And this one thing, I guess we should mention, it was, it was a very busy week for all kinds of elections this past week. We could have done a complete show on each one. There were the American election Republican and Democrat national conventions. We had the Ontario by-elections, in which I guess you could really say the PCs lose, and the Quebec elections where everybody loses. So uh, any of those that seem to be a favorite, or you have a commentary on any of those three or just elections? The, just the by-elections uh, were in Kitchener-Waterloo and Vaughan, uh, where you're right, the PCs lost, because here was their opportunity to basically overthrow the government, <laughs> more or less. I mean, they wouldn't have become the government, but they would have... 
um, put McGinty um, further into a minority situation. And they uh, didn't get the seat in Kitchener-Waterloo. The NDP grabbed it. So what is Tim Hudak doing? He's obviously an ineffective leader. Uh, people don't see any difference between Tim Hudak and Dalton McGinty. So um, if I was a conservative, and I am not, uh, I'd get rid of Tim Hudak right away before the next general election. Oh, I wouldn't want to see that. That wouldn't help our cause. No, it wouldn't much. help Freedom Party, <laughs> no. However... You know, at the same time, coming out of that, he's he's been accused of union bashing and supporting McGinty's liberals on the teacher issue now, which we'll probably get into shortly to some degree. But you know what he's come out with again as as his response? He's going to the, the the PCs are going to do away with those things called lins or something like that. Yes, it's the local, same yeah. the same platform they used last time to such great success. I doubt if one person in a hundred knows what a lin is or cares. <laughs> And yet this is the kind of thing that they're bringing forward to a solution to a, to a province that's on the edge of a Greek crisis. They can't even bring themselves to talk about it, let alone to create a solution. It's just amazing. And, of course, in Quebec, I was actually asked to, to do some commentaries on these uh, over the past week on other networks and stuff, which we'll probably hear about later. But the Quebec election, I can't really say much about it. It was almost a non-event. It wasn't really a big surprise to me what happened there. I think the corruption of government in Quebec has gotten to such a degree that that's what people are responding to. I think that's in large part what all the, the student protests are about, too. That, unfortunately, they think their problem is capitalism. <laughs> Right, And that's the issue. And of course, we have a government in place there now that if they were allowed to do what they wanted to do as a PQ would always want to do, could be disastrous. And I'm not talking about separation. I'm talking about all of their other policies. You know, from language uh, fascism to restricting of trade. They're just so anti-free trade, it's unbelievable. They're anti-freedom, period. Yeah. And so, uh, Quebec, Quebec, I think, is a lost cause intellectually. They, they need a re an intellectual revolution to get out of the quagmire of uh, their current level of thinking, which is ex so extreme left. I mean, people call Canada left-wing, but uh, Quebec just pay, uh, you know, makes us look pale by comparison. I agree. As That's far as their level of communism <clears throat> and socialism goes, fascism. I, I really couldn't see spending much more time than we just did now on these subjects, yep. to be honest with you. going to take a break now, and when we return, we really don't know what we're going to get into next, but I do believe one of the areas of concern will be a little bit more on education again. Is that right, Robert? Yeah, there's a couple of little things that we should uh, talk about. Okay. After this. Hi there, thank you very much, thank you so very much. See you later on the show. Just so much. We're gonna win, so see. We're gonna. Yes. Hey, Lieutenant, glad to see you. Mr. Hayward, saw the latest polls, you're doing terrific. Thank you, thank you very much. You're, uh, you are voting in this one, aren't you? Sure. Oh, I vote. Every election I vote, in our house, you gotta vote. Very sacred thing. We sit around the kitchen table, we discuss, and we vote. Uh huh, then you made up your mind about the candidates in this election. Well, you don't have to worry about my wife, sir. She's crazy about you. And you? Uh,. Well, I'm still the bit on the fence, if you know what I mean. Well, we're just going to have to put you on the undecided list, I guess. Every once in a while, a student will come up to me and ask, Senor Chang, why do you teach Spanish? They say it just like that. Why do you teach Spanish? <clears throat> Why you? Why not Matt? 
photography. Why not martial arts? I mean, surely it must be in my nature to instruct you in something that's ancient and secret, like, oh, building a wall that you can see from outer space. Well, I'll tell you why I teach Spanish. It is none of your business, okay? And I don't want to have any conversations about what a mysterious, inscrutable man I am. <laughs> Genius. In Espanol, my nickname is El Tigre Chino. Because ah! my knowledge will bite her face off. So don't question Senor Chang, or you'll get bit. You bit. You bit. Friday manana, we'll be having conversations with the rest of the class using some of the phrases we learned in unit one. You'll be partnering up in pairs of dos. <laughs> so if you look under your desk, you'll find a card with either a picture or a word on it, okay? For ejemplo, Blondie aquí has a card with a picture of a house on it. So that means a person with a card with the word casa on it is her partner. Comprende Starburns? Okay, see you Friday, find your partners, have a great day, and what do we say at the end of every class? Hasta luego! Come on, hands, 90% of Spanish. Hasta luego! Excellente, excellente. <laughs> Do you ever have a teacher like that, Robert? No, Bob, I can't say that I have. You They've know what? Peculiarities, uh, I've though. had teachers, uh, maybe two that were like that. Right. And they would just swing from one thing to another, and all you know that one, one moment he's raving mad, <laughs> and the next minute he's totally down to earth. But that's from the, the the comedy series Community, of course. If you haven't seen it, it's very funny and it has some great highlights. But it it also speaks to the whole issue of education, some of the things happening. I notice you've got a couple of items there. Why don't you get started on those? Well, the first thing that interests me is that Father Battles School Board in the London oh. Free Press from September oh. 11th. It's all one of mine. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Where um, this fellow um, wants to sue a school board be because they refuse to um, give him advance notice when they're going to be teaching things which violate his system of values as a Christian. And, of course, I dealt with this very issue in... Uh, when I was a, a school board trustee here in London uh, a number of years ago, uh, when we had sex education and a number of Christian groups came to the, uh, to the uh, trustees and asked that they be allowed to withdraw their s children from those particular classes because they thought them inappropriate uh, to their set of values. And I think that what we can come out gather from this particular issue is um, summed up again in choice. There's an article by uh, Marnie Supkoff in, uh, in Toronto uh, in, in the financial uh, free press, uh, not sorry, free press, the financial post, no, national post. Same thing. September 12th. Yes, it is sort of the same thing, isn't it? Um, and also an article by George Jonas, not the government's kids, and uh, a caller I heard on uh, one of the talk shows this morning, Tim, said, um, the problem is that we have no choice if we want to educate our own children away from either the Catholic system or the public system, because we still have to pay either one of those if we want to send our kids to the private school. And that, to me, is the crux of the issue. 
um, not the crux. The crux is government shouldn't be involved in education. But you can solve a lot of these problems by allowing a family to not only take their kid out of school and, and, and educate them elsewhere, but take the money with the kid. That thing alone would uh, solve a lot of the problems. That and the fact that the government shouldn't be teaching values as they see them in, in, in education. They should be teaching reading, writing, and I'm, I'm well... Well, we're well aware that values belong in a school system, but who gets to set them is is kind of a tricky issue. It, it is. And, and when who we pays the, the piper calls When we have a government um, setting the curriculum and, and governments that we... Uh, the, the majority in this, in this uh, first-past-the-post system would disagree with setting the, uh, the values that we're teaching our children, you're going to have conflict all over the place. And if it's not, uh, well, you're teaching the Muslims this, but you're not teaching the Christians this, but you're teaching the Catholics this and not the Muslims this, there's always going to be this conflict. Well, you have, you're only touching the tip of the iceberg. Look what else I brought here. Not only do you have this father battling the school board, and by the way, he's doing it through a court battle. He's launched a court battle, so it's pretty serious. Mm -hmm. And his, his thinking is that he believes the board attempts to accommodate parents of other faiths, including Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. And he says he's supportive of those other families, but he wants the same treatment. And I'm thinking if you want equal treatment, it should be none of them get that special treatment because what happens is exactly what's happening here. And as, as indicated in this article from the National Post, the atheist and the biased board in the Gideon Bibles. And we have a situation mm -hmm. here in this article of August 30th by Tristan Hopper that another Ontario father <laughs> is launching a human rights case that aims to drive the Gideons out of the province's public schools. So you've got these two cases going simultaneously, one before a human rights commission and one before a court. They're never-ending. I've seen them for decades. Well, as soon now. as you allow religious two differing religious ideas on the same property, you're going to have problems. The solution, I agree with you, Bob, when you said that they can teach values in school, but they have to be universal values. For example, don't hit somebody. Don't initiate force against somebody. That's a value. It is. No, that's not a value, but what, why would you not hit somebody? The Christian might say you don't do it because... It's you, against you, the because, Bible. Well, or because of brotherly love. Another one might do it out of mm -hmm. tolerance. And You're uh, absolutely right, yeah. So, so, I don't know that the action itself can be... Um, segregated from its motivation when it's when the motivations may be different in different people um for myself i don't mind if the motivation's a little different as long as in terms of that say non-violence that i can accept i can coexist with a belief system that at least is not going to physically interfere with mine so in other words teach tolerance well certainly tolerance but tolerance doesn't mean acceptance or agreement with that's right and or or being forced to support and that's a whole different issue and, um, you know, this fellow says, he says it was never his intention to distribute truckloads of atheist literature, of which there is none. Atheism is a non-entity. It's, it's not a belief system, you know. It's, it's, it's not even a non-belief system. It's nothing. Atheism is a non-entity. And uh, all he was wanting to do was get evidence that the school board is not being neutral. That's what some of these people push these, these kind of cases for, eh? And... Um, Anyways, he was uh, apparently in 2010, Niagara school officials drafted a policy opening the door for students to receive Korans, Torahs, and even the books of shadows in their religious curriculum. So uh, apparently 
they have now, the Niagara school officials have been instructed to follow the Ontario Multi-Faith Information Manual. Did you know there was such a thing? No, but it doesn't surprise me. And, of course, his complaint is the manual doesn't cover atheists, agnostics, and other non-believers. So let's get us in there, too. We'll get in the multi-faith. Uh, I tell you, quagmire. wherever you see religion, you know, differing religions in the same area, watch out. There's going to be a conflict regardless of what oh, they yeah. say. What's next? Well, you pick another topic, Bob. I have, but I want the last word because it's going to be a positive. Well, I'm just note. wondering if we're getting very close to well, the end of the show. Let's do this then. Okay, let's do it now. Um, I talked to you about this on the phone. Um, I want to end off the show on a positive note, showing sure. that man can achieve greatness despite all the stuff we covered today, which is war, uh, conflict, and religions, and schools, and taxes, and politics, and all that—that that which divides us. The Starship Voyager. Then by that I mean, of course, the uh, Voyager spacecraft that was launched in 1977 to go past the uh, outer planets is now about to leave in, uh, our solar system as defined by our heliosphere. Mm-hmm. That um, that nebulous boundary where uh, the suns and the planets wind, all rotate and oh, this would oh, be way so past Pluto, past right? So, oh yes, way past that. Um, really, how far sun, past Pluto? Twice as far, at least. <laughs> 17.7 billion kilometers right now. So, um, actually, it's measured in light years. It's not. It's not measured in light months or weeks or days. 17 light hours away. Oh my Remember of a previous show, I said that we're never going to be going off to the stars like Star Trek because it's just so vast. This thing was launched 35 years ago, and it's only 17 light hours away. But anyway... Hey, I don't know. I saw on Star Trek, V'ger came back on us. Yeah. <laughs> It was the same one. <laughs> Tried to sterilize Earth, yes. <laughs> yes. Sterilize, but anyway, sterilize. I think it's uh, I think it's a good way to end the show. Uh, this great accomplishment that we're finally going to be able to send a spacecraft into interstellar space that just blows my. Are mind. we still receiving information from? Yes, it? we are. Wow, and will for the next uh, ten years or so. Excellent. That's it for this week. Join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Be right back here. We'll see ya. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be over BBC cannot give in to government pressure No, no, of course not We wouldn't want them to, would we, Minister? Wouldn't we? No, of course (laughs) But you see, the Minister's interview with Ludovic Kennedy did contain some factual errors And since the recording I realised that I made one or two inadvertent slips that might have security implications Such as? He can't tell you what they are. <laughs> Why not? Security. I'm probably too careful about security, I do agree. If the defense of the realm is at stake, well, we do have to be very responsible. But I must make one thing absolutely clear. Yes? There can be absolutely no question of the BBC ever giving in to government pressure. <laughs>